Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusfiger, editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the seasoned political journalist and pollster Peter Kellner and Naomi Smith, chief executive of the campaigning organisation Best for Britain and co-host of a rival podcast, Oh God, What Now?, formerly known as the Romaniacs podcast. And today we're talking about yet another week of mayhem for the Prime Minister in which the leader of the Commons, Penny Mordaunt, had to reassure the House that the Prime Minister wasn't, quotes, hiding under a desk. Peter, we're speaking at 3.35 on Tuesday. Where is the Prime Minister at the moment and what the hell is going on? Um, Alan, we're in the position where Liz Trust, pretty well everybody, including her own party, wants her gone. Most MPs want her gone. Most Conservative Party voters want her gone. Want her gone. And in the last few hours, you've had a poll of Conservative Party members by YouGov, the people who voted for his trust over Rishi Sunak, and most of them want her gone as well. They now say, if it was a new contest between Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak, they vote for Rishi Sunak by two to one. Here's the problem: in order for Liz Trust to be forced out, it's not enough for MPs to want to go, they need somebody to succeed them, or at least a process that they're happy with. And it would be a process that would not be going back to the Conservative Party members week after week for another full-scale leadership contest. So at the moment, this trust hangs on in there because her opponents haven't really yet got a plan for getting rid of her. Naomi, that... that... I mean, Peter's described the dilemma very well, but it can't carry on for much longer like this, can it? Who knows, Alan? I am so beyond (laughs) trying to predict the outcomes of British politics. I mean, the last six years has has torn up any uh, unwritten rule book that we may have had. You asked, where is she? Well, within about an hour of recording this podcast, she's due in front of the ERG group of Conservative MPs, the European research group, those arch Brexiters. Um, and uh, I suppose, you know, a fear that I have at Best of Britain is that um, Brexit may be the only issue that could still unite her MPs. They are split along several different issues, of course, uh, notably the economy at the moment. 
Um, and next week, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill comes back to the House of Lords for its uh, committee stage. And if it passes that, it goes back to the Commons. Um, and that could be a rallying uh, of MPs behind her because it was, of course, her bill that she put down as Foreign Secretary and has kept um, uh, on the parliamentary uh, calendar since becoming Prime Minister when, of course, she scrapped uh, bills brought forward by Dominic Raab and others. So um, they may be hoping for that. There is, of course, a lot of rumour that, you know, MPs aren't going to act until that 31st of October, um, more maxi fiscal event than the one that we saw uh, Kuateng deliver just a few weeks ago that has now been rotundly U-turned on. But Peter's right. It's, uh, it's very difficult to call at this stage because while it is very clear that everybody wants her gone and that YouGov poll he referenced actually also has Truss's favourability rating falling to minus 70 and just one in 10 Britons now having a favourable opinion of her. Very difficult to know how they're going to do that and the timing of it. But she's hanging on by a thread. That much is certain. But, but Naomi, when you when you talk about the, the tribes of the Tory party, she's really pissed them all off, hasn't she? I mean, the left of the Tory party were never her tribe anyway. So to the extent that she was, she delighted the right of the Tory party, the more libertarian wing, She's now pissed them off because she failed to deliver what they wanted. And they've, mm. she's really ruined the chances of that kind of neoliberal, libertarian, economically libertarian agenda for a generation. So she's no use to them any longer, is she? And, and, and rumours today that she's also potentially going to reverse the triple lock on pensions, which is yet another U-turn. She's pissed U -turn. the pensioners off as well. She's yeah. now pissing pensioners off, who may have just been the, the last gasp of support she had amongst the Tory membership. Of course, this was a manifesto commitment in 2019 to stick with that triple lock. It was now not just a U-turn on manifesto and on her own policies. This is obviously a big U-turn on a major coalition policy, another one under Johnson of course, is the repeal of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which again is all part of this frustration that, that the whole country is feeling. There is no mechanism to remove a very obviously failing and deeply unpopular prime minister. So, Peter, to go back to, to how you open the, the, this podcast, there are two elements, aren't there? The one is that the process, it doesn't exist for getting rid of her. She's, she's notionally safe for a year after the last vote of no confidence. So they've got to rewrite the rules. And the problem there, I guess, is whether they involve the membership or not. And the second is they've got to coalesce behind a candidate. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be an agreed candidate. Can you just unpack those two bits? Yeah, I, I think the, the, your second point, Alan, about there being no agreed alternative is the more important one. Because both Theresa May and Boris Johnson won confidence votes and were out within the year, in less than 12 months, they were supposed to be safe. If enough Conservative MPs want to get shot of a leader, it will happen, as it happened with Theresa May and, and, and Boris Johnson. And at the moment, the desire is there, but the strategy isn't. And a desire without a strategy is what we got. It's pathetic. And it does seem to me... For the Conservative Party, if I were a Conservative MP wanting the best for the party, the question, as in, in so many political situations, I would ask myself is, what would my opponents like 
And it's quite clear that what Labour and the Liberal Democrats, and I would guess the SNP, most want is for trust to hang on for as long as possible. The longer she hangs on, not only is her reputation dead in the water, but increasingly she will drag down her party's reputation. It's probably already lost in terms of winning the next election, but it's the scale of the defeat which is still in question. And, and so you've got these Conservative MPs, they're wrestling, their essential dilemma is we know we need to get rid of her and the, the quicker the better, but if we act too soon, might we create an even worse mess as a consequence of getting rid of her? And so it, we carry on in this weird era when it's pretty clear she's not going to last for that much longer. Prime Minister's questions tomorrow are going to be, you know, you could sell tickets for a £1,000 a time <laughs> for a ringside seat at Keir Starmer opposing Liz Truss just at the moment. I mean, last night when Liz Truss, that not all desperate, I don't know, the desperate television interview, you know, if one puts TV interviews on a scale of highly successful 10, Margaret Thatcher at her best facing down Robin Day, down to say zero, Prince Andrew facing Emily Maitlis, I would put Liz Truss's performance around two or three. Not quite <laughs> as bad as Prince Andrew, but a lot nearer that end of the scale than Margaret Thatcher in her prime. Peter, you say no clear successor, but we do appear to have a de facto prime minister in Jeremy Hunt. And wouldn't it be wonderful if tomorrow Keir Starmer was to open PMQs by asking, to whom should I be addressing my questions? Because even the Sun <laughs> newspaper today leads with ghost PM and the mail in office, but not yeah. in power. No, it's quite I agree. And it's... And, and, and Keir Starmer, in a lot of ways, he's got a really difficult decision tomorrow because everybody will be expecting her to make mincemeat of Liz Truss. So anything short of, of three goals in quicks, a hat-trick in terms of effective questions, anything short, and it would look like he's failed. And one of the, quest, one of the, one of the things I think he's got to decide is, is whether he goes for humour or demolition, for a nuclear bomb or a rapier, what will be the style and the tone of his questioning? So it'll be interesting not only to see how his trust performs, but how Kistama performs. His difficulty, uh, isn't it, that which, which uh, Jeremy Hunt quite effectively pinpointed yesterday, was that Labour now doesn't disagree with much of what we think the, the, the Hunt package is going to amount to on October, October the 31st. They, they've event, effectively stolen Labour's clothes uh, how, how does Labour um, attack when they're actually they, they agree with most of the, the measures that Hunt has brought in? Naomi, do you want to try that one? Sure. I, I think up until this point, um, perhaps quite rightly, Labour's strategy is don't interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. So they've not been particularly forthcoming with their grand vision for the country and what a Labour-led government would do, uh, not least because they, they wouldn't want the Conservatives to steal any good ideas that, that they may have at this stage. I think there comes a, a point, and it probably comes quite soon, when you are so evidently the Prime Minister-in-waiting that you have to start to talk to voters about what your government is going to look like, what is the shape of Britain under Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. 
I think Peter's point about whether to go for, for ridicule or a, a more brutal uh, forensic uh, analysis of her is, is a, a good question. Um, we all love the hoobah, you know, of, of PMQs and, and uh, you know, the spectacle and theatre of it. But that annoys most voters. They, they, you know, they don't like that. And I think given the scale of the cost of living crisis or cost of living emergency, as it's probably more accurately to be referred to, particularly now that mortgages are hitting on top of energy bills, um, I think a sombre tone will be received better with voters who really are sick of the current state of things. Can I say, Alan, that the Tories stealing Labour's clothes, so there's no, pol- or not much of a policy difference, I don't think that in itself is a problem for Labour, in as far as voters noticing that the Tories have en- they ended up earlier this year on a windfall tax of some sort that Labour had proposed. They've ended up with a six-month policy on, on energy su- uh, support, which Labour had proposed, and, and, and so on. The Tories have withdrawn the 45p tax rate. In as far as voters notice, I think this helps Labour establish its reputation for economic competence. Labour's much more vulnerable when it seems to be much more profligate than the Conservatives and more irresponsible. The real problem for Labour will come, and it's not quite there yet, because at the moment I think Labour can get away, as Rachel Reeves says every time she's on the radio or, or television, well, we don't know what the Tories are opposing, we don't know what the OBR is going to say, we don't know what we'll inherit, and therefore we're not going to put out precise alternative policies. But come the election, Labour will have to put out an economic strategy. And I think your fundamental point, Alan, then become comes into play because there will be a big choice for both parties as to the balance between protecting public services and keeping taxes down. And, and I don't see how Labour can plausibly go into the next election saying health will get all the money it needs, education will get all the money it needs, defence, the police, and so on, without putting up taxes, not just windfall tax, not just you know big companies and rich people, but putting up taxes and or national insurance for workers on average pay. So there will come a time when these issues confront Labour, and I don't, I don't think it's tactically happening now, but it will happen in due course. Naomi, just to go back to the Tories, because I don't think we quite landed this one. I mean, the last thing they can afford is is a, a public squabble over who takes over. So the the ideal scenario is Liz Truss is bound and gagged and and put into a padded padded van at the back of Ten Downing Street as the anointed successor comes in through the front door. But because they can't agree on a successor, there has to be some kind of process. Um, they they don't go back to the Tory membership on it, yet the Tory membership could get potentially quite um, arsy if they were chopped out of the process. What What is the process that, that, that is sort of done and dusted in two and a half days that, that gets the field of whatever it is for four potential candidates down to one? And is, is, well, it's is, a tough one. Is that why trust is still in power? Because they can't actually decide that question yet yes so according to technically according to the rules she's supposed to be safe for another 11 months from a vote of no confidence 
as we've mentioned, they can remove that grace period via a 1922 committee vote should they have the sufficient numbers and the will to do that. And then I suspect that Graham Brady, the chairman of that committee, would raise the threshold of letters needed above the current 15%. There are rumours around across the internet from different MPs of different parties saying they've heard that over 100 letters have already gone into Graham Brady's inbox. And of course, as, as Peter's mentioned, both Johnson and May were finished by internal pressure but rather than by that vote of no confidence. It really is untenable that we are in a situation where we have a prime minister who now cannot talk about the economy with any credibility. We've got an international reputation that has been tarnished by Johnson and is being further sullied by the current government, COP27, beginning in just two weeks. What influence or credibility will she have there? And the choice, therefore, facing the Tories is keep her in and face extinction at an election in two years because she is so deeply unpopular or replace her and lose less badly maybe next spring, that is a guess. I also think it's incredibly difficult for the Conservatives to install another Prime Minister who has neither the support of the country or the Tory party membership. If there is a candidate around whom they can rally so it does not need to go to the membership to remember Andrea Lebson pulled out so Theresa May got a run at it without having to face the membership it, that is a possibility but right now I cannot see those front runners wanting to step down for one another you've got uh, ambitious people like Mordaunt, Sunak again, Johnson himself potentially, Hunt of course there already as de facto prime minister I can't see them wanting to stand down for each other they will probably think they are the best person to do it. One can only imagine that at some point you have to follow the money and it will be if the big big Tory backer grandees say this is how it's going to be. I agree with them. But I would add, there is one other possibility here. The moment I think it's highly unlikely, but is that there might come a point where Liz Truss herself decides that her continuation is impossible and she announces that she will resign as Boris Johnson announced in July as soon as a new leader is chosen and therefore force the rest of the party to decide how to deal with that situation you are nowhere near but that, I, I don't think that I'm gets not. around I don't think that gets around the ambitiousness of the Mordaunt versus Sunak versus whoever yeah. else no, yeah. Jeremy I, Hunt no, it, it doesn't it doesn't but it forces them to, to be decisive at that moment because as long as this trust hangs on in there and they can't decide she will just go on and on and I just wonder whether there comes a point a, a few weeks mm. from now it is so miserable. It is so unpleasant. She has so little power. She's the subject of so much ridicule. She just says, "Hey, look, all right, I'm off." But but you but Johnson but Johnson Johnson didn't do that until he had cabinet resignations. And Truss, yeah. to my mind, has got the hide of a rhinoceros. She is incredibly thick-skinned. Most people would have already been broken by the humiliation. Most people wouldn't have had the front to sack the man who you sent out to deliver your leadership promise and your economic plan. So I don't think she would resign unless there are big cabinet resignations. The cabinet did meet this morning before we recorded this podcast. We're told there were no threats at all of resignation. They were all saying, look, we'll stick with you until at least the 31st of October. So I think for the next couple of weeks, it's unlikely anything is going to happen. 
unless yeah, men in grey suits come in and there's hands on shoulders and dark no, eyes. No, no, I agree with you as of now. As of now, I agree. There's absolutely no sign of Liz Truss saying that. What I'm saying is, technically, that might be a solution. I think it's very improbable, but, but who knows? We're in such a weird, uncharted territory. You know, who knows who's going to do, do what? I mean, isn't the reality of the next couple of weeks that that Hunt is going to be appearing to be Prime Minister. He effectively is Prime Minister. He, it's almost impossible for Trust to, well, not almost, it is impossible for Trust to sack him. And so therefore he can do what he likes. And as we saw in the House of Commons yesterday, she sat there looking like a mannequin sitting next door to him, staring into the middle distance, not saying anything. So he will seem Prime Ministerial and does that sort of, in a way, boost his chances of being the de facto prime minister the longer he's there? Oh, um, I, well, I think he is the de facto prime minister. And incidentally, just going to pick up a point that was uh, that the thing Nemi raised um, earlier um, about the possible end of the, of the triple lock on on pensions and the damage this would do to conservatives if they um, if they don't raise pensions. Um, in line with prices. But of course, if that is what happens, it will be Hunt's policy. Hunt and trust if you like, but Hunt will be the prime mover. Um, so that in an odd way gives trust some cover. Um, and then we get into the position where if the Tories go even further behind Labour than they are now, which seems highly improbable, you know, then what does the Tory party do? You know, it's tried a chancellor who hands out large numbers of sweeties to voters they then try to chancellor, which takes away the sweeties voters already got. Then where do they go? I mean, it will be a complete mess. So I agree that the political impact of withdrawing the triple lock on the Conservative Party will be dreadful. But it raises some quite curious problems within the Tory party in terms of the leadership and what happens next. Naomi, um, we've talked about whether you could really legitimately and morally have he yet another Tory Prime Minister chosen by whatever system they cook up. But legitimacy and morality are really sort of old-fashioned concepts now, aren't they? And in <laughs> reality, they can do what they like, can't they? Yes. And having repealed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, it is for the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister alone to determine if and when there is another general election up until, I think, the latest it can be called is around about the 19th of December 2024. So it could even be a January 2025 election. So, you know, technically a new Conservative leader, Prime Minister, Jeremy Hunt, whomever, could cling on for as long as then. There are lots of backbench Conservatives rumoured to be pushing for an election in that scenario that we would have no democratic legitimacy. Chief among them, of course, Nadine Dorries, who has almost certainly been promised her seat in the Lords, so a general election would have few consequences for her. But lots of other rumours of Conservative MPs beginning to tap up recruitment agents to say what other jobs are out there, please, because you know they know that they're either gone in an early election or they're gone uh, at a later election. It doesn't actually matter at this stage who is going to lead the Conservatives into the next election. They're not going to win it unless something very miraculous happens. And as Peter said earlier, it's about the scale of the defeat. But one of the polls out yesterday that you know had Labour on 
if if you did a national uniform swing on it, it was not an MRP poll, but it was an opinion poll for the TUC, it, it would have put Labour on over 500 seats with the Lib Dems as the official opposition ahead of the SNP narrowly and, and ahead of uh, the Conservatives and a rump. And I can tell you, none of the front runner candidates for Prime Minister holds their seat in that scenario. Peter, tell us about the polling, because you've spent your life thinking about polling and studying polling and writing about polling and doing polling. How extraordinary are the polls at the moment? And should we take them with a degree, a small pinch of salt, or are they telling us something profound about a... Telling us something profound, which is the Tory government is in deeper trouble than any government before. Now, if you just take the, the numbers at face value, there was in fact a period a couple of years before the 1997 election when Tony Blair's Labour Party was even slightly further ahead um, of John Major's government than uh, Labour is now. But the difference was that Blair was just box office. He was a political rock star. His own ratings were in the stratosphere. Now, Keir Starmer's ratings have improved actually quite markedly over the last few weeks, but they're still miles behind where Tony Blair was. So for the Tories to be more than 30% behind in the latest polls, the last two in the last 40 hours was 32% lead, 36% lead. So it's been drifting up through the 20s into the low 30s. When Keir Starmer is to some extent now respected and accepted, voters are no longer frightened of the Labour government. But this is much more a verdict, much more specifically a verdict on the Conservatives than it was in the mid-90s when it was a verdict on both Conservative and Labour. But let me just say one thing about caution, which is why we won't be down to two Tory MPs or even 25 or 50. It's because one of the reasons why the Tory vote is so low is that every poll finds that a high proportion of people who voted Conservative last time, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, depending on which poll you look at, now since they don't know who they'll vote for. Now, we know that the Tories in particular, who voted one election, are going to vote in the next election, overwhelmingly. They're not going to sit it out. And I think it's reasonable to suppose that Tories, who ex-Tories who now say don't know, they've not moved to another party, even though everything is so awful for the government. So I would expect the great majority of them, in the end, to go back to the Conservatives. So even if, as were nobody from now on changed parties, simply that large Tory don't know bit. It's, we're talking about maybe three million people here. If they overwhelmingly go back to the Conservatives, that, you know, it, slavery will still win, it could still win big. But, about you know, I, I would wager that the Tories will not be below three figures at the next election. That may be no great comfort to say, I think you'll get at least 100. Um, but I do think suggestions that they won't be the official opposition. I think that's, um, that's going it a bit. I just want to come in with, with one point on what Peter said, which is that this is also going to be a different kind of election for, for several reasons. First of all, Johnson's deeply authoritarian approach to legislation saw the Elections Act make its way through Parliament, which makes it more difficult to vote. People are going to have to produce ID. The forms of acceptable ID are much less likely to be held by younger voters, by lower income voters who may not have passports and driving licenses. So again, that, that get out the vote, which is always so difficult for Labour, becomes even more difficult. And if the election happens after the summer of 2023, it will be fought under new boundaries. Now, in some parts of the country, this makes it 
better for Labour. In other parts of the country, it makes it more challenging. Take Wales, for instance. Just the overall number of constituencies in Wales is going to shrink. Um, at the moment, most of the polls are showing that, that Labour will you know, mop up very, very well in Wales. But the, num- the absolute number of seats they mop up there is reduced. And with a, a still relatively uh, buoyant SNP north of the border in Scotland, um, again, we're just not looking at a 1997 landscape for Labour, uh, just even if they are sort of polling comparative figures to, to Blair back then. So um, I, I think Peter's probably overall point is we can't really take anything for granted at the moment. Yes, the trend is clear, but the scale could be really quite different. And and those Conservative voters who can be po- shy in, in how they poll uh, and, and are saying don't know that either... Uh, you know, vote Conservative or they vote the wrong way in marginal seats and they go for, you know, the Lib Dems where the Lib Dems aren't actually in second place and that helps the Conservatives hold the seat. There is a lot to play for still at this election. Yeah, can I just add to that? And then it's absolutely right that because of boundaries, because of what's happening in Scotland, because of a variety of factors, let's suppose in the popular votes... Labour repeats its 1997 performance. That in that year, it had something like a four million vote lead over the Conservatives in percentages: 44, 31, 13, 13 percent leading the popular vote. Labour had a massive majority, getting on for 200. The same national vote shares now, or at least after the boundary changes, would lead Labour with a majority, depending on tactical voting and various things. It might be 20, 30, 40, 50. It wouldn't be. 179. And by the same token, if Labour were to, if the if the lead was a slip, the Tories capped up to the point where Labour was maybe five or eight or nine points ahead, it would be a minority government. So it's still possible Labour will win big. But if it's going to win big, it'll need an even bigger lead in the popular vote than it had under Tony Blair. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask you about a piece that got quite a lot of traction on Twitter, but but not in the political dialogue because there, there seems to be a moratorium between Labour and Tory that nobody discusses Brexit. This week in The Telegraph, a senior editor there, Jeremy Warner, wrote a piece saying that actually Project Fear was right and that the Brexiteers have to confess this and that all the bad things, all the bad consequences of Brexit that people projected were, if anything, undercooked. When historians come to write the history of this period, uh, will Brexit be the blame? Will the focus be on Brexit as as the cause of the turmoil that we now find ourselves in? Well, Europe has brought down many a Conservative leader before now and, and has long been the Conservatives' poison chalice. I didn't work in politics before the referendum. I was happily biding my time in a nice, quiet accountancy job. And when Cameron called the referendum, I knew I had to quit my job and just go all in because I was so worried we would have a leave vote. And I think now when I look back at why did I have such a visceral reaction to it? And I think it's because I knew that it would unleash more pernicious forces than even stripping people of their freedom of movement and you know all of the economic problems that we knew would ensue and that it would legitimize this sort of brand of libertarian market fundamentalism combined with a deeply authoritarian democratic agenda or anti-democratic agenda. And I just don't think any historian worth their salt could possibly decouple the situation that we find ourselves in now 
from that growing Euroscepticism peddled by the Murdoch press for 40 years and its pernicious impact on the body politic we have now. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm with Naomi on this. It seems to me the clue to, to addressing this, and I agree with you, Alan, that Labour and Tories act as if they are some pact not to talk about it. And the surprising thing is Labour, which after all wasn't responsible for Brexit, and the Labour voters and Labour MPs overwhelmingly think we shouldn't have left and should, if we could be, back in the EU. But, you know, all the polling that I and others have done, there's a new poll out from the Tony Blair Institute in the last 24 hours, it, it, they all lead to this conclusion, that if we were to get closer to Europe on an economic and social prospect, so we would have immigrants that would help our economy, that we would have frictionless trade with the EU, so something like customs union single market, maybe called something different, and so on. Most voters are not that hung up upon the idea that we have our own environmental rules or product safety rules or workers' rights rules. And I think if, if Labour in particular were to campaign on an economic and social basis for a much closer relationship with Europe, and put the cultural issues to one side, I think Labour could actually do very well on that. But the problem is that around Kiyosama, people who believe, I think they're wrong, but they believe genuinely, that if they say anything substantive or substantial about softening Brexit, all hell would break loose in those red wall seats. A lot of ex-Labour voters would say Labour is betraying the democratic vote of the country six years ago. And sadly, I think Keir Starmer is so far been too frightened to take that on, despite, as I say, polling evidence, which shows that it could be done and framed in a way to a vote winner, not a vote loser. And I think we've got to also make the much more human case for it all as well. I completely agree with you, Peter, and you know that, that is something that best for Britain that we encourage Labour to do all the time. We take evidence from businesses that are struggling with Brexit red tape, added costs, all manner of nightmares caused by the trade friction they now suffer. And we're giving Labour the space to be able to say, well, this is so it's good for British business and British brands, we can do this. But come on, we've also, we owe it to humanity to talk about the wonderful, positive contributions of immigration emigration, all the Gratians, and the wonderful impact they can have on our lives and our children's lives and that, that working with our nearest neighbours and partners on all manner of issues, whether it is cures for diseases, pandemic responses, or just learning to live and love and study next mm. to each other is just a wonderful thing. And I think for far too long, for Europeans and pro-Europeans and internationalists, Europe is in our DNA, but for too long it just stood for do not acknowledge because it was thought to be a vote loser, but that's because nobody made the positive case. And we, we have to do both, I think. I'm, look, I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant. Um, my father was an Austrian Jew who, like so many Central European Jews who survived the war, were out of Germany. The problem, the political problem for party, I mean, and, and I agree with your sentiment completely, Naomi, is that what any political party that wants a positive approach to immigration 
it has to answer the question, how can you ensure that we keep out as much as possible the people who come here for all the wrong reasons? Now, part of the problem here is there were never very many such people. But in the run-up to the referendum, and I, I was doing polls at YouGov at the time, there was a belief amongst Leave voters that Britain was being overrun by people, mm -hmm. uh, by welfare tourists, people coming and, from and, Europe. And because we've had failed socio-economic yeah. policies of, of, gov of yeah. many governments, of the Blair government, of the Brown government. You know, we, we didn't have managed migration. We didn't treat, we had a very laissez-faire approach to immigration, unlike, say, the Canadians, who have a much more interventionist approach to immigration and making sure that people have access to free language courses mm. and follow a much more of an interculturalism mm. model. So it's not just about what we say, it's about how we do it and how a new government can soothe so many of those concerns so that sure. when you are confronted with a lie on a poster or you know a, a, a populist politician pouring xenophobic slash racist bile at you, you are able to just discredit it because it is not your lived experience at all and it doesn't resonate anymore. So I take your point completely, yeah. but we must also address why it was able to have any traction. No, I agree. No, I, I agree. And you know, other countries, I think Belgium is a very good example. They know when we talk about freedom of movement in Europe, that the European rule is freedom of movement of labour. It's, it's not freedom of movement of people. And Belgium is one of the countries, if you come to Belgium, you haven't got a job within three months, off you go, away back to wherever you've come from, rest of the EU or outside the EU. So it's not even as if we, we couldn't have a rational immigration policy within the EU. But you know, as I say, in the run-up to the referendum, this is from recollection, we asked a question where we said there are, at that point, I think about two million people born elsewhere in the EU living in Britain. And we said, how many of them do you think are claiming uh, welfare benefits related to, to work. Um, and the actual figure was, I think, 20,000, 30,000. It was, it was lowish tens of thousands. But the average reply from Leave voters was half a million. Mm. You know, there was an extraordinary mismatch between what was actually going on or what people thought was going on. So when people voted Leave to say, you know, close the door, on all these feckless people from the rest of the EU, it was on the basis of information which was wildly wrong. We've come a long way from the, the start, starting part of this conversation. Perhaps we could end with Liz <laughs> Truss and her polling ratings. I think uh, favorability rating is minus 70, is that right, Peter? How, how, does yeah. it make her the <laughs> least popular prime minister in history? Oh, yes. I, I, it, 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 well, this is minus 70. It's 10% think she's okay. 80% think she's doing badly. 80 minus 10 gives you, you know, a 70% net uh, opposition to her. Oh, this is, you know, I think you know, even you know, Jeremy Corbyn is most unpopular. You know, Alan, you and I will remember Michael Foote 40 years ago <laughs> had simply awful ratings, but they didn't get this low. And uh, I mean, it is plainly irretrievable. I think Nick Clegg's um, did at one point. I think Nick Clegg got as low as foot in the last few years of coalition. Um, so if Liz Truss wants to be as popular as Nick Clegg was when he landed, <laughs> you know, good luck if that's your career I, objective. I don't think Zuckerberg has got her on speed dial anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, look, thanks, Peter and Amy, so much for, for joining us today. It, it could all be terribly out of date within half an hour but or by tomorrow, but that's the danger of podcasting. But it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks to everybody for tuning into the discussion. If you enjoyed the podcast, Escape the Echo Chamber, grab hold of a copy of the new issue of Prospect, where you'll find lots of enchanting writing. Listen out for the next episode of Prospect Podcast next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.